Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, <clears throat> the sutta for tonight, <clears throat> what will it be? Is this loud enough? Can you hear? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to um, base the talk on a sutta that um, is, is really, it's a favorite of mine. There are some suttas as the Satipatthana Sutta and uh, the turning of the wheel discourse that uh, that guy read last night that are straight doctrine and teachings. And there are also a number of discourses that are narratives that tell a story of some encounter that somebody had with the Buddha and how they, um, they saw the truth and awakened. And uh, the, the discourse that I want to share tonight is in some ways the most poignant and inspiring transformative story um, of all. And that is the uh, Angulimala Sutta, which is from the Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. It's number 86. Angulimala was um, the son of uh, someone who was in the court of the king, King Pasanadi, who was the king in the area that the Buddha was um, spent a lot of time, Savati. And he was born, uh, he was given the name when he was born um, Ahimsaka, or Harmless One. In some accounts I've read that they, uh, that it's, that they thought his name was Himsaka, or Dangerous One. But uh, in, the, in his poem at the end of the sutta, he says, having been called Harmless One, um, I went on to discover lots of different truths about suffering and, and pain and the freedom from suffering. He was called Harmless One, and he was um, a student of a teacher who he was uh, uh, very devoted to. This teacher um, favored the student, and the other students became very jealous and so they conspired to, um, to get back, to have revenge to their, um, their fellow student. And they told the teacher that he was sleeping with his wife. And they all swore to this, yes, he's been sleeping with your wife. It sounds like it could be right out of uh, current American politics. Oh. <laughs> what? Othello. Othello, yeah. Anyway, the teacher was outraged, and to get back at, at this uh, uh, disgrace, what he did was um, set, his, uh, set the student out with a task to prove his devotion, and that is to get 
a thousand fingers off the bodies of people that he had killed. He wanted him to kill a thousand people for him. Now, you've got to be a pretty devoted student to follow through on that one. <clears throat> but in his, um, in his sincerity, he went about this task. And he was a very big man and uh, uh, daunting, intimidating. And he turned to a life of violence. And it's said that um, bands of people, 10, 20, 30 people would come and he would, uh, he would be waiting for them, a bandit uh, par excellence, and kill them all. And then cut off their finger and put it on, his, uh, on a necklace that he wore around his neck. And Angulimala means finger garland or finger necklace. You know, mala, mala beads. Angulimala, finger garland. So I'll read a little bit about it, because uh, when he meets the Buddha, he sees uh, the he sees another possibility and transforms. Thus I've heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeddah's Grove, Anattapindaka's park. On that occasion, there was a bandit in the realm of King Pasanati of Kosala named Angulimala, who was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people, and he wore their fingers as a garland. When it was morning, the Blessed One dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. When he'd wandered for alms in Savati and returned from his alms round, after his meal he set his resting place in order, and taking his bowl and outer robe, set out on the robe leading towards Angulimala. Cowherds, shepherds, and plowmen passing by saw the Blessed One walking along the road leading towards Angulimala and told him, Do not take this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit Angulimala, who's murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, etc., etc. He's constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, and even 40, but still they have fallen into Angulimala's hands. When this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence. For the second time and for the third time, they told this to the Blessed One, but still he went on in silence. Now, as part of the story, which is not here in the, um, in the sutta, Angulimala saw that, uh, I mean, the Buddha saw that Angulimala had killed 999 and was going for the even thousand. And he also saw that Anguli's, Angulimala's mother was on her way to meet him and realized that she would be the thousandth victim. So out of compassion, he stepped forward and uh, became the decoy, so to speak. Then the bandit saw the Blessed One coming in the distance, and when he saw him, he thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. That's 
uh, uh, a common expression meaning, this is amazing. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, etc., but they've fallen into my hands. Now this recluse comes alone, unaccompanied, as if driven by fate. Why shouldn't I take this recluse's life? And then he took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Buddha performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One, who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. This is amazing. Formerly, I could catch up even with a swift ele elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up with a swift chariot and seize it, with a swift deer. But now I'm walking as fast as I can, and I cannot catch up with this recluse who's walking at his normal pace. And he stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse, stop. I have stopped, Angulimala, the Buddha replied. You stop too. And then the Angulimala thought, these recluses speak the truth, assert the truth. But though this recluse is still walking, he says, I've stopped, Angulimala, you stop too. Suppose I question this recluse, what's he talking about? And then he addressed the Blessed One. While you are walking, recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now when I've stopped, you say I've not stopped. I ask you now, recluse, about the meaning. How is it that you've stopped and I've not? Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings, but you have no restraint towards things that live. That is why I have stopped and you have not. And with those words and some very powerful vibrations and aura, <laughs> Angulimala woke up. What have I been doing? And he was completely humbled by the Buddha's presence and realized the error of his ways. And so he, he, he said, at long last, this a venerated sage has come to this great forest for my sake. Having heard your stanza teaching me the Dhamma, I will indeed renounce evil forever. And the bandit worshipped the Sublime One's feet and then asked for the going forth. And the Enlightened One, the Sage of Great Compassion, the Teacher of the World, with all its gods, addressed him with these words, Come, Bhikkhu. And that was how he came to be a Bhikkhu. And that phrase, Come, Bhikkhu, is used, uh, was used many times and is used now often to... Uh, uh, to have somebody go through an ordination. Well, when the people found out that Angulimala was with the Buddha, some of them became very upset and frightened. Can you imagine 999 people he killed? And they both feared for themselves and feared for the Buddha and went to the king and said, this is terrible. 
this bandit is now part of the Buddha's uh, ordination or uh, ordained Sangha. And the king went to the Buddha saying, we hear that Angulimala is part of your Sangha now. This is awful. We're all frightened and scared. And the Buddha said, Suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, and that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, from false speech, the, the five precepts. And if you saw him virtuous, celibate, and of good character, how would you treat him? And they said, the king said, well, I would pay homage to him. And then the Blessed One said that, saw that Angulimala was sitting not far from him, and he said, great king, this is Angulimala. And Pasanadi was, was frightened, alarmed, terrified. And the Buddha said, do not be afraid, great king, do not be afraid. There's nothing for you to fear from him. With that, the king and the, the townspeople let him stay in the, uh, in the order. But Angulimala's story continues. He had some great moments of, uh, of remorse and pain and suffering for all that he'd done. And he had a turning point one one time when he was out for alms round. He had wandered on his alms round from house to house, and while he was wandering, he saw a certain woman giving birth to a deformed child. When he saw this, he thought, how beings are afflicted. Indeed, how beings are afflicted. And he went to the Buddha and told him about this, this woman giving birth to the deformed child. Venerable sir, I dressed and taking my bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms, and I saw a certain woman giving birth to a deformed child, and I thought, oh, how beings are afflicted. And the Buddha said, in that case, Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Stopped him in his tracks with that one. Venerable sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie? For I've intentionally deprived many beings of life. Then Angulimala, the Buddha said, go into Savati and say, Sint say to that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. And he did. And he said that to, to her and comforted her. And then the woman and the infant became well. Can you imagine what that would be like to have such tremendous guilt and remorse and the Buddha 
saying to you, you are the one to go comfort and heal this woman by your, the power of your virtue and dedication to the truth. You can heal and comfort this woman. And in fact, this is a, a recitation that is given to women who are uh, in childbirth that, that monks give. And uh, repeating Angulimala's words, the purity of their action and the purity of their dedication to practice can be a healing and comfort to others. With that, he really gained inspiration and confidence. And before long, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent, and resolute, the venerable Angulimala by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, here and now entered upon and abided in that supreme goal of the holy life. He became completely enlightened, an arhat. Now, it's also important to hear that when he would go out on his alms rounds, the people remembered who he was, who he had been, and they would throw stones at him. And this was also in the sutta. Someone threw a clod and hit the venerable Angulimala's body. Someone else threw a stick and hit his body. Someone threw a pot shirt and hit his body. With blood running from his cut hand, with bowl broken, with its outer robe torn, the venerable Angulimala would, went to the Blessed One. And the Blessed One told him, Bear it, Brahman, bear it. You are experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. And then his last, his words at the end of the sutta. There are some that tame with beatings, some with goads and some with whips. But I was tamed by such alone who has not rod nor any weapon. Though I once lived as a bandit with the name of Finger Garland, one whom the great flood swept along, I went for refuge to the Buddha. Seeing the ref- see the refuge I have found, the bond of being has been cut. Do not give way to negligence, meditate with diligence so as to reach the perfect bliss. So welcome to that choice of mine and let it stand. It was not ill-made. I have attained the triple knowledge and done all the Buddha teaches. Now when I I read that sutta, I get really inspired. It's never too late. If you have guilt, if you have remorse over past actions, if you are beating yourself up for things done, remember the sutta. It's never too late. And what the sutta really points to for me is the amazing capacity of the human heart to wake up and also the capacity 
and the power of forgiveness that can transform someone. Because there's the Buddha saying, stop, you can stop. See what you've done. You can change your, your life around. He didn't say, you're condemned to hell. He said, it's not too late. Come, bhikkhu. We love stories of redemption, don't we? It's one of the most inspiring qualities of the heart to turn around and to open up and, to, and, and we can feel the, the warmth and the inspiration when we see that somebody has turned their life around. Forgiveness is really the key to this all. And what I really want to focus on is forgiveness and the capacity of our heart to forgive. It's really the basis of compassion, if you think of it. There are, compassion is having an open heart in the face of suffering. Now, there's some suffering that doesn't require forgiveness, that just you see a child hurting or somebody in pain, and you're not forgiving that person. But what we need to do is forgive life for its mysterious sorrows that befall us. But when we are working with ourself and with our difficulties with others, the basis of a compassionate heart is forgiveness. It's a key point in practice because it is the antidote to the complaining mind, to the aversive mind, to the mind that contracts and wants to blame either ourself or somebody else, or life. The first few days of a retreat give us often ample opportunity for forgiveness. Because we, especially if you've done this before, have such sincere dedication to wanting to do it right, do it well. But it takes a while to get to that place where we can actually settle in and experience peace, experience ease. Glimpses you might get. And what they often do is just tantalize for when they're not there. Oh gosh, it was really quiet that sitting a few, few hours ago. This isn't the way it is now. And it's so frustrating. What am I doing wrong? That's where the problem is when you have that question. What am I doing wrong? Because what you do is you take ownership of the experience as if you have control over how mindful or calm or clear or pain-free you are. You don't have control over it. How have you related to your body last day or two when it's given you some discomfort, aches in your shoulders or your knees, do you get angry with it? Is that what it needs? Can there be a quality of kindness towards it and realize, oh, this body is serving me the best it can and it has served me my whole life the best it can. Just like a 
a child doesn't need scolding when it's doing the best it can and can't do any better, our bodies don't need scolding either. In fact, that frustration and anger just is more contraction in the mind and in the body, and that's not where the the opening comes from. How do you relate to your mind when you find yourself caught again and again in a tape loop that you've been playing for the last three hours? I can't believe I'm doing this again. Whether it's about relationship or work or family or loved ones or meditation, you know, we go on and on. It's like somebody has kept our finger on the play button and we can't, we can't get it off. On top of that, then there's the frustration that comes when we see that we're caught in it again and again. And so instead of having some compassion and forgiveness, we have frustration and anger and discouragement. And all that does is keep us tight and contracted, which perpetuates that tape being played. Forgiveness comes in realizing that these are just habitual patterns of thought, playing themselves out. When you understand the conditioning that has been practiced day after day, year after year, lifetime after lifetime, and see the enormity of the task then the response is real compassion. I've shared with you, uh, with many of you, a story of, of doing some walking meditation in the gym and, and just feeling really into it and the slow walking meditation and then having pride come through my mind as somebody bolted out in, in frustration. And I thought, wow, I'm a pretty good yogi. I bet she thinks I'm really neat. And just feeling this whole yuck of, ego and comparison and image and all, and really getting discouraged by it, and then realizing, oh my goodness, the millions and millions of times that I had thoughts like that, that I've trained so well, and in a moment, there was this wave of compassion for the conditioning that I'm trying to unlearn. When you're mindful of that conditioning, it is a purifying force because not only are you not contracted, but you are not taking ownership of the experience. And you see, ah, just conditions playing themselves out. And in that moment, there's not aversion, there's not grasping if it's a pleasant thing, there's not identification there is a moment of freedom. It's humbling, though, to see it over and over and over. So again, we have to bring moments of mindfulness over and over and over. Once heard one Tibetan teacher called meditation practice one insult after another. Yeah. It's really humbling. 
This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho talking about seeing his mind. He talked about seeing craving in his mind. Always on the lookout, always seeking for something. It can be an attractive object which is allowable for monks like a nice robe or an alms bowl or some delicious food. Seeing the inclination to want it, to touch it, and try somehow to get it, own it, possess it. That's craving. It's a force in nature which we must recognize, not to condemn it and say, I'm a terrible person because I have lust. That's just another ego reinforcement, isn't it? As if we were not supposed to, be, to have any lust, as if there were any human being who didn't experience desire for something. And then we get very angry with it and want to get rid of, the desire to get rid of, and that builds on itself. You can witness that also. I want to get rid of this pain I have. I want to get rid of my lust. I want to get rid of my weakness. I want to get rid of this dullness or restlessness. I want to get rid of everything that annoys me. Why did God create mosquitoes? I want to get rid of the pests. And it just kind of builds as you get this aversive mind. I don't like this. This is where forgiveness is the key. Because forgiveness is really seeing how things are. It's not waiting out or letting it slide. Okay, well, I guess I'll put up with it. There's really this mysterious opening of the heart that can happen that says, oh, this is just the way it is. Again, Ajahn Sumedho says, uh, We are not here to become anything or to get rid of anything or change anything or to make anything for ourselves or to demand anything, but to awaken more and more, to reflect, observe, and know the truth of things. And really, the heart of forgiveness is in understanding, understanding how things are, understanding when we compare, understand when we are putting ourselves down, understanding that we are just doing the best we can. And through that understanding, seeing beyond who we take ourselves to be, understanding that there's something beautiful in there that we often can miss because we're so looking at the exterior and what we think we should look like. This is a quote. I don't know where it came from, but... Believing your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring our own opinion to God. Our own opinion to God's. And as we can learn to bring forgiveness to ourself, it starts to carry over to forgiving others. Because when you see your own humanity, it's a bodhisattva act. It's something that 
is a great gift to everybody else. When you see your own humanity and you can forgive it and you can be kind with it, then you're practicing that response when you see others who get caught, who do unskillful things, who are mean and cruel. I want to share with you an article that um, has touched me deeply. I just came across it a couple of days ago. Uh, It was written by a friend. Actually, we share the same birthday. And there's a special kind of a connection when you have a a birthday friend. She's a a very um, sincere, dedicated yogi who lives in Vancouver. And she gave this talk um, this year called Breaking the Chain of Suffering. I want to share a little bit about her process of forgiveness. Every year on this date, I do something to honor the memory of my father. She gave the talk on that particular date. This year, as a result of agreeing to speak to you today, I have devoted three months to explore the nature of forgiveness. As a fellow traveler, I humbly offer you my progress report. When something devastating happens, by accident or intent, the rage can take a long time to run down. In remembering the event, we can do several things. We can keep the rage alive by recounting the errors of others. We can cultivate guilt by recounting our own mistakes. We can use it as evidence of the inhumanity of one group of people. We can reinforce in the memory of our image as a victim. We can use it as evidence of the unfairness of life. These may be valid, justifiable reflections. Solidified into habitual patterns of thought, they build a prison which separates us from our source of vitality. There are alternate routes. I come to the topic of forgiveness as a last resort after exhausting myself elsewhere. I'm headstrong enough to believe that forgiving an injury is a betrayal of its wound. Besides, I know that I'm incapable of forgiving many things. Does that voice sound familiar? If you are aware of a Waldorf place in your heart that is not open to the light of forgiveness, then you're in good company. I'm with you. This talk is not about stoking the guilt fire. Neither does it promise rewards of unity with the divine. It's about acknowledging the barriers to that unity and how to dissolve them. It was the heartfelt pain of holding on that made me answer the invitation to share my report with you. My father was a Unitarian, a United Church minister. He taught forgiveness, the imperative but not the means. His murder left me with a lot of homework. Forgiveness is not an appealing topic. The hurt placed place inside feels forgiveness as a betrayal. There is shame at being unable to forgive a struggle between the forces of holding on and letting go. Holding on seems easier. We all do it 
W.H. Auden expressed this in his lines, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Acknowledging my own reluctance to let illusions die, fully aware of the dread of looking at the unpleasant, I look anyway because I want to be happy. Here is the catastrophe that is still challenging me to do this. On the night of July 23, 1982, in his manse in Grenville, Granada, in the West Indies, my 69-year-old father was a victim to a home invasion and strangled to death. The motive, it was assumed, was robbery. It was feared it was racism. By the time I got the call, there had been arrests. After the funeral, after we left the island, there were trials with convictions. Today, 18 years later, with some balance of mind gained through meditation, by cultivating the courage to look at the joys and sorrows of experience, I got down to my homework. It's not easy. It's difficult to keep an open heart after we've been hurt when resentment is justifiable. Even if we decide to forgive, it doesn't just happen. Forgiveness is a gift of grace, not an act of will. It is a collaboration of head and heart. Genuine heart release is the goal, but grasping at the goal doesn't work. You know that feeling when you just want to forgive? It's in here, but it's not quite in there. How do we jump that chasm from here to there? The mind is frustrated in having to relinquish the role of boss. Nevertheless, the mind is a key runner in the relay. For example, the mind needs a reason to forgive. It has many for not forgiving. In the end, we do so out of compassion for ourselves. We do it out of commitment to life and its continuation, recognizing the interconnectedness of all of life which we're part. Last fall, I received some letters in the mail which disturbed the calm that I had come to in putting this to rest. She says she had buried it for a while. Until then, I thought that two of the three intruders who were old enough to be tried were convicted and hanged in spite of the fact that my brother and I had written to the Grenadian government to voice our opposition to capital punishment and I had been misinformed. One of these men, now 40, is still in jail and wants out. I can't describe what it was like to see the handwriting done by the same hand that killed my father. A minister who befriended Victor during pastoral care sent our family several letters he had, Victor had written to him in the hope that somehow we could help facilitate his release on parole. It seemed to me like an inappropriate request. The contents of the letter left me feeling that a desperate man might say anything to gain his freedom. I did not feel inspired to act, and I did not feel I owed him anything. And the letters went into a drawer. Still, my mind 
needed to understand how to reconcile forgiveness in, with a world of injustice. The unpardonable, the indefensible, the despicable happens daily. No level of society is exempt. And then she says that taking this uh, on this talk inspired her. If she was going to talk about forgiveness, she pulled out the letters again. Really accepting the inevitability of suffering is a major reorientation. We are connected to all beings, even those whose deeds are despicable by our pain. The poet Longfellow wrote, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow enough to disarm all hostility. Forgiveness is a way of breaking this chain. The most powerful act is setting the intention to forgive, and this we can do again and again. This is all we can do. Six months after I received these letters, the day after I agreed to give this talk, I took them out. I squirmed and wept as I wrote to Victor Whiteman. I stated my intention to create the possibility for healing and reconciliation for myself and for himself. I asked him personal questions. I introduced my children by name, age, and sent a photo of our family. I acknowledged my own courage and his if he were to reply. I stated that it was no business of mine whether or when he was released. My tone was respectful for his humanity and free of bitterness, and I asked for a heartfelt reply. My hand trembled as I mailed the letter. His reply blew me apart, and I'm still not back together. Just holding the envelope sent a charge through me akin to terror. This stranger had changed my life. We have an intimate bond neither of us wish for. The letter showed me how much I had invested in holding that man in a villainous light, how my self-contrived sense of safety precluded seeing his humanity. This is what I found difficult in his letter. He acknowledged the past and future suffering he had brought to my family and his own family, exceeded any necessary means to express remorse for the mistakes he'd made when he was young, ignorant, and impulsive. I sensed his fear recalling that time. He expressed empathy that I might relapse into the time, to the, back to the time of murder. And the most difficult was his spiritual connection. I quote, this is him saying, This is a lesson of shame, pain, regrets, and a tremendous amount of humiliation for me. Not so much in the sight of man, but in the sight of the Creator. Through God's love and forgiving spirit, I pray and hope one day I will be able to meet you face to face and ask your forgiveness. My prayers are not much for freedom per se, but for eventual forgiveness. Because even though I were to obtain a governmental pardon, without your pardon, I would not be totally free. There is no doubt that my heart is still closed. There are some pieces I've yet to do, more that I have to know and say, and time I have to wait. The process of demilitarizing my heart is underway. 
May the chain of suffering weaken and break. May I be willing to release that person from indebtedness because I see the benefit in holding my heart open because I'm strong enough to acknowledge that pain comes with being alive and I want to be fully alive. I just got an email from her yesterday um, saying that she um, is going to see him in a few days and asked for uh, my prayers and support as she has asked a number of people. And she says she's not through with that process. It's not a process that you can hurry up, that you can say, oh yes, I'll just forgive. But it's a process that starts with an intention and that requires real patience and that ends in a real release of that contraction of heart. Because in the end, we're forgiving not just for the other person, but we're forgiving for ourselves because it's too painful to hold inside that contraction. And we also somehow begin to forgive life as well. It's too confusing to figure it all out, why there's so much suffering in the world. Why, when you turn on the TV or pick up a newspaper, there's one after another instance of cruelty. How can you hold it all? There's also joy, and there's beauty as well. And it's beyond our comprehension to figure out this mysterious divine plan. But if we are holding our hearts closed in anger and railing at life, it can be understandable, but there must be something more that we can learn. There must be something that we can aspire to, to somehow give up our knowing, to give up our figuring out, give up our understanding how it all is and what it all means. This is uh, Robert Hall one of my favorite poets now, on forgiveness. He says, thousands of times I've wished for redemption and the easy breath that comes with forgiveness of sins, real or imagined. But where does one find that blessing? Certainly not from moralists who carry the book around in their hearts nor from pious posers who hide their shame inside splendid robes, but always from the place holding truth within the darkest darkness, lying under softest moss, surrounded by the sweetest trees, in the most intimidating forest of confusion guarding the heart's gate. Where to enter is given only to the most courageous body full of gratitude, 
kindness, generosity, given freely to the sinner and the child who reside in all of us who seek belonging to the family of conscious love. So in your practice these these days, notice how that button gets pressed that turns your thoughts against yourself. If you want to gauge how you're doing, don't look at what your meditation looks like. That's going to be a losing cause. Because no matter how clear you get it, it's going to be spacey before too long. No matter how calm you are, the way of things is change, and it can be turbulent in a in a few hours. If you're mindful, like everything else, that comes and goes. So if you have some kind of an idea that you're holding up, that you're grading yourself against, you'll never pass with flying colors. Or maybe you will for a little while, but the next report card is just around the corner. Rather, if you need to gauge your practice, just get in touch with your sincerity, with your sincere intention to wake up, to understand, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to see the truth. Your sincerity is what you bring to this whole process. What it looks like is completely beyond our control. So I'd like to just close with a, a few moments of forgiveness practice that we can all do together. So if you would take a sit. You might just reflect on something in your life or something in your heart that calls for forgiveness. Maybe these last days you've seen impatience or judgment or confusion or fear. Or your inability to forgive others. Just pick something that needs forgiveness inside. And have the intention the intention to see with great compassion. Whether you can or not, don't worry about it. Just have the the intention to see with the, the eyes of a bodhisattva, 
to see with the heart of Kuan Yin, this place that is hard to touch. And for a moment, just reflect on the conditioning, the habit of mind that keeps coming up. And reflect on the intention to wake up so that you see it and hold it clearly. And then for a moment, just send thoughts of forgiveness around this. I forgive myself for this. For just being who I am. Imagine what it would be like to be kind to this quality, to understand with compassion. And then some forgiveness with others. Perhaps there's something that you've done here on the retreat or in your life with someone else that's been unskillful. Imagine them in front of you and ask for forgiveness. If I've caused pain or suffering through my confusion, I ask forgiveness. If you can, imagine them hearing you. And forgiving you. And then extending forgiveness as well. Maybe somebody has hurt you. Bring them to mind. Or maybe something 
in the last day or so on retreat, somebody has done something that's upset you. For any pain or suffering that you've caused to me, I forgive you. I forgive your confusion. And then lastly, a quality of forgiveness in the sense of accepting how things are. Forgiving life for any seeming injustices that have happened to you. Letting go of figuring it out. Seeing that there are mysterious lessons, finding some meaning somehow. And be very patient with your process of You're not quite there. Just be right where you are. May the heart learn to forgive. And may the forgiveness grow into great compassion for myself and all beings. Okay, so um, there'll be a walking period, and we'll uh, have a sitting this evening, and we'll end with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.